theyeshiva.net. Hashem appears to him, and he's sitting by the tent. Now that's a difficult pasuk to understand, because usually in the Torah, whenever Hashem appears to somebody, it precedes communication. So we're expecting communication afterwards. Hashem appeared and said. Hashem appeared and spoke. Hashem appeared and asked. There's always an appearance following communication, right? Later we'll learn that Moshe Rabbeinu saw the fire in the burning bush. It's not just he sees something. It's followed by a communication. The same is true every other time. Hashem appears to somebody in a dream or in vivid reality, all the way from Adam to Noach, all the way down to Avram and further. It's always with a message. Here, there's no message. He just appears to him. He appears to him, and what happened? Suddenly the story is interrupted by a second story. He picks up his eyes and he sees three people. Is there a connection between the first Pasuk and the second Pasuk, which is just two completely different stories. Hashem appeared to him, we don't know why. And then, we're now stopped, we finished with that story, now we have a new story, which would be a very difficult uh, way to understand. The context is difficult. This is Genesis chapter 18, Bereshis Perikit Ches, which begins with Parshas Vayera, Pasuk Aleph. The structure is a very difficult structure, because you look for the sequence, and you don't see it. Hashem will later come back to talk to him again. When the guests are about to leave and Sarah laughs, Hashem speaks to Avram. And then when the guests leave, Hashem has a conversation with Avram about Sdaim. You know, he tells him that he wants to destroy Sdaim because of the heinous crimes and the heinous evil and the selfishness and the narcissism. And, Avram, and the narcissism and Avram Avinu starts fighting for Sdaim. <coughs> it would be unjust to destroy Tzadikim together with Rishayim and they have this whole conversation with Sdaim. So how do we understand the structure and the context. And that's why Rashi says that the first Pasuk is actually a separate story. Avraham Avinu was sick. It was the third day after his bris and Hashem just came to visit him. And when you visit, you don't have to say anything. Some people think when they visit, they have to say something. You see from Hashem, he didn't say anything. He just showed up and said, I'm here. <laughs> you don't have to be an Ibechachim. God also could say a lot of things. He also knows a lot of stuff. <coughs> but nonetheless, he doesn't say anything. He just comes and visits the sick. That's how Rashi explains the enigma, because what is it doing here? So at the end of Lech Lecha, he circumcised himself. It was difficult, it was painful. And on the third day, Hashem comes to visit him. The question is why Rashi says it was on the third day. Why not the second day? Why not the first day? <coughs> why not the fourth day? It doesn't say in the Pasuk that it was after that. Okay, so the Mepharshim discuss why the third day... <coughs> Excuse me, forgive my cough again. And then the story gets interrupted, and he sees three people who are showing up, and even though he's ill and he's sick, Hashem came to me, nonetheless, Avram Avinu's heart is so, uh, it swells with so much love and generosity that even in this state, he can't just sit and relax and enjoy what they call in America down time, but rather he feels compelled to invite them, and the story continues. That's one way of looking at it. The Rambam has a sefer called Meryon Avuchim, the guide to the perplexed, the guide for the perplexed, and in section 2, I think it's chapter 47, 42, Perik the Rambam says that you have to understand the whole story differently. It was all a vision. Vayere Lav Hashem is the introduction to the whole story. Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu. What did that vision look like? He saw in his vision, in his mind, three people. According to the Raman, the whole story is a prophetic story. So Hashem appearing is like the headline before the story. Hashem appeared. Now let me describe to you what that vision looked like. According to the Raman, the whole thing happened in Avram Avinu's 
own prophetic experience. Three people coming and him offering them food and meat and cream and then promising Sarah to have a child. All in his vision. The Ramban criticizes uh, this uh, interpretation very heavily. The Ramban was Nachmanides and he criticizes Maimonides a generation later in his commentary on Chomash. How could the Rambam say it's all a vision? They went afterwards to Sdoim. Was that also a vision? Was Sdoim's destruction? So the Ramban disagrees with, Avram, with, uh, with the Rambam on the interpretation. There's a third interpretation, it's most, most radical interpretation, and that is that it's actually all part of one structure. Because Hashem appears to Avram Avinu to speak to him. Hashem appears to Avram Avinu to visit him or to speak to him. And it's Avram Avinu who sees three guests and then tells Hashem, please don't leave while I go to tend to my guest. That's a whole different interpretation, which Rashi brings as a second interpretation, which changes the whole context. It means that the two stories are not just connected, but they happen one after the other. Hashem appears to him. And while that appearance is happening, we don't know yet what Hashem is going to do. Is he just visiting? Does he want to say something? Three people show up and Avram Avinu now turns to Hashem and says, please wait. I really want to go help these people. And he interrupts his encounter, his yechidus with the Rebbein Shalom to go taking care of the guests. And this is where the Chazal famously learn the halacha in Meseches Shabbos, Kuf Chavzayin, Shabbos 127, G'dayla, Hachnasas Archim, that hospitality of guests is greater than welcoming even the face of the Shechin of the Divine Presence. Because how can Avram Avinu interrupt his intimate private audience with the Rabbi Shalom just because there are three Bedouin guests, they seem like Bedouin Arabs. The Medrash even say what they looked like. Strangers, wayfarers, and he says, wait, God, wait. Got some important business to do. Now imagine, think about it. Imagine you had the greatest Jew of a generation, the Gadol Hadar, coming to your home. He is in your home, talking to you. And then you see three people, you don't even know them, three strangers, and you tell them, please, I know you're busy, but please wait. And you really, you don't just interrupt them for a moment, you know, to take another call. Avraham Avinu sat with these people for hours while God is waiting. That's a fascinating most people would look at you and say, where is your chutzpah? How do you have such chutzpah? Such audacity. Now, this is not just the Gadol Hadar. It's the master of the world. It's the Gadol HaOlam, Melech HaOlam. And yet Avram Avinu did that. And the way the Chazal interpret then the structure of the story is that it's so important that God appeared to him. And he interrupts that appearance to go take care of the guests. And of course, it changes how we translate the Pasuk. Because if you look in the second, in the third Pasuk, he says, my masters, if you like me, if I find grace in your eyes, please don't pass my home. Literally, he's talking to the guests. He's talking to the three people. And he calls them, my lords, my masters, please don't leave. But there's another interpretation, that's the third interpretation I'm giving you, that he's talking to Hashem. And of course, the vow changes. Do you read, Vayoymer? Adonai, which means my masters in plural, speaking to three people, like you'll say, sir, my sirs, my masters, my honorable people, please don't leave. Adonai, that's one vow. Or you do it with a comet, not with a patach. Which, of course, alav dalad nun yud with a comet is Hashem's name. It's one of Hashem's. Names. 
Adna, Baruch Hashem, that's what we say, Alev Dalad Nun Yud with a Kometz. The reason I pronounced it earlier is because I said the whole Pasuk, just for the record. Now I'm not saying the whole Pasuk, so I'm just referring to the name. That's a huge difference. And the question in Halacha, the Gemara says in Shavuos, Laman Hey, the question is, are you allowed to erase? Hashem's names, you're not allowed to erase. Are you allowed to erase this one? Somebody writes, this Pasuk, are you allowed to erase this word, Alev Dalad Nun Yud? If he's talking to three Bedouin Arabs, you're allowed to erase it. <laughs> my masters, my lords, sir, you're allowed to erase it. But if he's talking to Hashem, then it's Kaidish. Then it's holy, it's sacred, it's Hashem's name. It's a fascinating question. Depends. It's unclear. How do you read the Pasuk? Who is he talking to? In other words, is it a separate self-contained story detached from the first verse? Or is it all one continuation? Hashem appears... And Avram Avinu turns to Hashem after seeing the three people and he says, Please Hashem, don't leave my home as I tend to these guests. And Hashem indeed doesn't. He waits around <coughs> till he's finished. It didn't take a half an hour. It took a few hours. It's clear from the Pasuk. What he did for them, he had to thank you. He had to... <coughs> prepare the meat and prepare the milk and feed them and take care of them. And they had a long conversa- a conversation. And only afterwards does Hashem resume his encounter with Avram Avinu after the meeting, after the hospitality is finished. Now the obvious question that some of you are thinking is, what does it mean to tell Hashem, don't leave my home? What would it look like if Hashem left his home? If you're talking about a physical presence, a physical being, you could say, you know, here, please, Hashem, here's the couch, here's the Wi-Fi code. You could check your emails, you could use the internet, you can... <laughs> the refrigerator is yours. We have one that I got great cheese danishes this morning. Please enjoy. Let me take care of my other guests. When you're talking about the presence of Hashem, when you're dealing with infinity, or as the Pasuk says, His presence is everywhere. Or as Uncle Moishi taught us, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. But it's a tradition that precedes Uncle Moishi, goes back all the way to the first Moishi Rabbeinu, and even before Moishi Rabbeinu, monotheism. What does it even mean, God, please don't leave? And if he does leave, where do you think he's going? He's going to leave your home? He's going, okay, I'm going to be everywhere in the world besides here? What does it, what did, how did Chazal even understand those words? This is a wonderful question. That was raised by the Maire Nayim. That's a Hasidic work authored by Reb Nachum of Chernobyl <coughs> called Maire Nayim, the light of the eyes. And in Parshas Vayera, he asks this question What did Chazal mean when Avramavinu tells Hashem, don't leave? As though there is an option. I may leave, I may not leave, and I'm asking you to please stick around. Isn't God always present, always available, always? accessible, as the Pasuk says, wherever you mention my name, I'm present. That's an important question. But then we'll get back to that. Let's now go to the next step. So this itself is an incredible nuance in this story that the Chazal showed and excavated how from here you learn Avram Avinu's priorities in life. That for him, when he had an option to speak to Hashem one-on-one, privately, in the most revealed, manifested way, he said, I have yet a greater priority. But it doesn't stop there. The story then continues, because if this is not enough, what we now witness is Avram Avinu's service, which is greater than a six-star hotel. Five-star hotel, Mela. 
But even a six-star hotel, I don't know if it exists. I just made it up. It's fine. Somebody will one day make a six-star hotel. Some of your homes are that way. So it's La'elo, La'elo, his service transcends anything you would expect from water, bread, meat, milchiks, fleishiks, vazdevilst, yogurt, and cream. <coughs> and the Gemara learns from the Psukim that he slaughtered three, three oxen so they should all be able to have tongue because tongue is the greatest delicacy. And if that wasn't enough, nach with chardel, with mustard, because what's tongue without mustard? If you see in the Psukim, it says, Chema is translated as butter or some as cream or as yogurt and the meat that he made and he gave it to them. The Ben Ishchai asks in his drushes, he says, why did he give them first milk and then meat? Meat is much more prominent and more chashev. He says, but Avramavinu observed the Torah. If he would have given them meat, now they would have to sit around for six hours. <laughs> unless they had the meaning of three hours, whatever it was, and they'd get hungry. And Avram Avinu was like, you know, the programs always have a tea room. You don't keep people hungry. When they finish, ever went to the hotel, they finish lunch, they go to the tea room, they finish dinner, they go to the tea room. And one of the greatest crises in Jewish hotel programs is when the tea room is closed after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner. So Avram Avinu doesn't want them to wait six hours to get the milk. He gives them milchik, and then they could take a little break, whatever their meaning was, a half an hour, an hour, wash your hands, wipe your mouth, kinua chapeh, and he right away gives them ben habakar asher asa. If that's not enough, Avram Avinu had many servants. He was a wealthy man. He can ask his attendants to take care, but it says no. He himself went to the tent and asked Sarah herself to prepare. He doesn't only walk, he's running, he's running to take care, to take care of these guests. And after offering them such a lavish meal, so many delicacies, such comfort, with such prosperity and expansiveness, Avram Avinu also does not forget to escort them and say goodbye. As it says in your source sheets, They stand up, they gaze at Zdoim Vavram Hoylech Imam Lashalchem. And Avram Avinu walks with them to bid them farewell, to send them on their way and say goodbye to them. And if one might think this is a one time event, Avram Avinu was having a very inspiring day. So the Torah in Parshas Vayeda, a little later, a few chapters later, this is chapter 18, chapter 21, Vayita Eshel Beber Shava, Vayikrasham Beshem. Adenoi El Oilam. Avram Avinu plants an Eishel in a city called Be'er Sheva. After the destruction of Zdoim, the whole geopolitical and geography of the centers of living in Eretz Yisrael changed. So Avram Avinu moves from Hebron, which used to be at the center between the east and the west. He moves to Be'er Sheva. He plants an Eishel in this place called Be'er Sheva, and he calls out in the name of Hashem. What is an Eishel? So the Gemara incited Daf Yud and Rashi quotes the two opinions, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemya. He either plants a garden, a huge orchard to be able to feed wayfarers, people traveling, delicious fruits, or another interpretation is Eishel is actually a pundak, a hotel. This was the first Waldorf Historia in history. <coughs> it was Avram Avinu's hotel. This was an Eishel where he fed people. And Rashi says Eishel is the famous acronym of Achila Shsia Levia. He fed them, he gave them drinks, and Leviyah, he also escorted them. Or Rabbeinu Bechayah says, Eishel is Achila, Shina Leviyah. 
eating, sleeping, and escorting. He didn't only feed them, he gave them a place to sleep, because if it was a hotel, not a garden, of course it was a place to sleep as well. So this was Avram Avinu's tradition and custom. He plants an Eishel. This is what he does in order to feed people, to help to, uh, to uh, host people, to nurture them, to feed them, and also to escort them. And as I said before, it's fascinating, because in the Torah there's many mitzvahs, 613. But I don't remember, maybe I'm mistaken, but I don't remember. If you look through the Torah, you should see the Torah describing a person doing one particular mitzvah, like you see with this particular mitzvah of Achnas Asarchim of Avram Avinu. And it's obvious that the Torah sees it as a symbol of who Avram was, what the first Jew was like, and what the first Jew and Jewess were like, Avram and Sarah. It becomes a symbol, it becomes a paradigm, Misa of a similar bond. But now I want to go one step further, which will reveal yet a deeper layer in this whole story. And that is how the Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, the greatest halachic authority, one of the greatest halachic authorities, if not the greatest in Jewish history, the Rambam was born, <coughs> excuse me, in 1135. He passed away at the age of 69, tw- in 1204. Chav is his yard site, buried. He passed away in Egypt. He's buried in Tveria. And his magnum opus, I mentioned earlier, another work of his, the guide of the perplexed, Mary Nebuchadnezzar, but his magnum opus was his greatest halachic work, Mishnah Torah, which basically was the first time in Jewish history that somebody categorized and compiled halacha, Jewish law, in an organized fashion into 14 svarim. In the last sefer of the Rambam called Shoftim, the book of leadership, of judges, he has a section of halachas called Hilchus Avil, the halachas of mourning and grief and comforting the mourning and, esqu- and giving honor to those who are deceased. And over there in chapter 14, Hilchus Avil, Perik Yud the last chapter, and you have it here in your source sheets so you could see it inside. There's also a translation in English if you want to follow it in English. I'll read the Hebrew and translate it. But I want you to focus on his words because he is now taking the story that we just learned in Vayera and he's codifying it halachically. There's one thing reading a story in Chumash. There's another thing turning this story into the Shulchan Aruch. Turning this story into a manual, an instruction manual. So the Ramamir takes a story that every child who learns Chumash is familiar with and the Ramam now codifies it halachically and in his wording, we find some really enigmatic ideas that really challenge us to look one step deeper. So the Rambam says, and I quote, Mitzvah asei shal divrehem, there is a rabbinic mitzvah levaker chaylem, to visit the sick, ulanachem avelem, to comfort mourners, ulahitzia meis, to uh, prepare for a funeral, to prepare the deceased for a funeral, ulahachnes hakala, to prepare a bride and bring her into Chasanah, and to escort the guests, to say goodbye to guests. That's a mitzvah. And then he goes on other details of to take care of the burial and to uh, make sure the deceased has everything he needs and he goes to the wedding to take care of the Chasanah and Kala, etc. He calls this all Gmilus Chasadim and he says even though it's the rabbis who instructed all these things, it's all part of one mitzvah v'ahafta, Love your fellow like yourself. Second paragraph, halacha base. Listen carefully. Accompanying the guests, saying goodbye, escorting them, levoya means to escort, is greater than everything. This is the tradition that Avram Avinu established. He engraved. Chayk is like the statue that Avram Avinu engraved. This is the path of kindness that he lived by. He fed travelers, wayfarers. He fed them. 
And he gave them to drink. And he escorted them when they left. And the hospitality of guests is greater than welcoming the Shechina. Shenemar, the Pasuk says, we know where in Vayera, Vayar, he saw, there were three people. Escorting them is much greater than inviting them. Amru Chachamim, the sages said, Whoever doesn't escort the guest and say goodbye, it's as though he shed their blood. Now, when we look at this Rambam, who just codified the story of Parshas Vayed and Ta'alacha, there's a few big questions. First of all, remember that first line we started with, Mitzvah Sasei Shal What's the mitzvah? Levaker Chaylem, visit the sick. It's a mitzvah. Lenachem Avelem, go comfort somebody who's grieving for someone who passed away, which we call today, Nechem Avelem, Shiva. Lohitziyameis, to take care of a person who's deceased. Ulahachnes Hakala, we call it Hachnasas Kala. Right, to bring a kala into her chuppah, into her wedding, to take care of the wedding, to take care of, of her home, of establishing a life. And next one is, to escort the guest. That's the mitzvah. Really, shouldn't he say the mitzvah is? We call it It sounds like the main mitzvah is not to bring them in, it's to say goodbye. Really? <laughs> Why, so you make sure they never come back again? Huh? Sometimes you want them to leave. I get it. So by saying goodbye, you lock the door. So the Ram says, that's the mitzvah, like, boom, Baruch Shepetrani. I mean, we say every morning, Bringing in guests. We don't say, Sure, you escort also. But that's how the Ramam describes the mitzvah. The mitzvah is, and to escort the guests goodbye. But that's when the mitzvah is over. That's when it's finished. Such an interesting, enigmatic expression. I would expect him to say, In fact, our sages, and he himself says later, They don't say, is just at the end, but that's how the Rambam describes the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to comfort the grieving, to visit the sick, and to say goodbye to the guests. That's so interesting. It's true, Avram Avinu said goodbye. It says clearly that Avram escorted them, but that's just a detail. At the end of a very long story, he walked them out. Beautiful, nice, gracious. You're a nice host. The Rambam takes that detail, and he says that's the mitzvah. It's almost like, feed them? Okay. Give them some drinks? Okay. You gave them a bed? Very nice but you escorted them. That's the mitzvah. And then he continues, and he says the schar for escorting is greater than everything else, which is also strange. You worked very hard in your kitchen. I hope you had help. For two days because of these guests. And I'm like, okay, that's all nice, right? But saying goodbye, saying bye-bye, have a great day, have a good Shabbos, that's greater than everything. And then he says, that's the tradition of Avraham Avinu. That's the chayk that he engraved. That's the derech hachesed shenagba. It's all part of the tradition of Avram Avinu. He stopped. He invited them. He ran himself. He told even Hashem to wait. But the Rambam chooses to zoom in on one detail, and that is schar halavoya. The consequences, the reward of escorting. Yes, he fed them. Mashke oisan, but malava oisan. Another fascinating thing is, 
What's the Rambam's source that Achnasas Archim is greater than welcoming the Shechina? He says, Shenemar Vayar Anoshim. He saw there were three people. He doesn't even say Vigoimer. But how from these words do you see that Achnasas Archim is greater? He's talking to Hashem and he sees that there's three people. The Gemara gives a different source. The Gemara says, because he told Hashem, don't leave. Al Decha. At least the Rambam could have written Vigoimer. These words of the Rambam. First of all, he changes what the Chazal use as a source. The Chazal see the source that Achnasas Archim is greater than Kabbalah's Pnei Ashkina. From the words I said earlier, explicit, clear. He told Hashem, Alev da Adne, please don't leave. I want to go take care of them. Obviously, this is the priority. The Rambam brings an earlier pasuk. Hashem sees, Hashem comes to, Hashem reveals himself to Avram. He picks up his eyes, and he sees, there are three people. He doesn't even do anything. He didn't do anything yet. This is his source, that Achnasas Archim is greater than Kabbalah's Pnei And then he says again, escorting them is greater than bringing them in. And then he quotes the statement of the Chachamim, that if you don't escort them, it's Shvichis Damim. It's like a form of shedding their blood, a form of murder. What does he mean by that? Usually the interpretation is that when a guest left and he went into the wilderness, he went into the fields, he went out of the city, he may have not known the ways, he can get lost, there may be bandits, there may be <coughs> thugs, there may be people who are killers and he may be in danger. You know, you leave him to go alone and it's it may be unsafe, especially in the, the olden days. You left the shtetl and you were out alone. So by escorting him and or escorting her and accompanying the guests to another place, to another home, to another city where it's safe was so important. So without that, it's Kilu Shoifakdabim, I may be responsible for their murder. That's the whole idea of Egla Arufa. That when somebody was found slain in the field, the best didn't have to take responsibility. Perhaps we let them just leave the city without anybody escorting them, without anybody protecting them. In fact, there's a famous Das Kedem Baliatoisfus that it says that Yosef sent back a message to Yaakov after 22 years, Vayaris Ha'agolois. He told Yaakov that the last, he still remembers the last halacha Yaakov taught him was the halacha of Egla Arufa, the halacha of what you do when a Jew is found slain in the field, a sacrifice they had to bring, a calf. And the question is, why did Yosef remind him of that halacha? Because that was the last one. But why was that the last one he learned? And one of the explanations is because Yaakov was escorting Yosef when he sent him off to Shechem to visit the brothers. He escorted him. And Yosef said, why are you escorting me? Go home. So Yaakov said, there's a mitzvah of Egla Arufa. You have to escort somebody. Of course, it didn't help. Yosef's life ended up the way it did. But that's why he taught him that mitzvah. That's what the Das Kenim Mebali HaToisvah says. But the Raman doesn't give you an explanation. He just says, if you don't escort somebody, it's like you shed their blood. That's a very intense statement. It's like I invite you to my house, and then I say, okay, bye-bye, you'll find your way, right? No, it's Kilu Shoifech Damim. Really? I mean, that's so dramatic. And what if it's not a shtetl? What if it's, you have a guest in Munsi? Baruch Hashem, Adbiyaz Goyal Tzedek, they could walk the street safely. So where's the Shoifech Damim? Okay, I didn't escort the person. Where's the Shoifech Damim? <coughs> 
And why is the schar for Leviyah greater than everything else? You would think maybe because without it, it's shvich is But he says it as a separate thing. First, he says the schar of escorting is greater than everything else. And he adds at the end, I want to tell you one more thing, but he doesn't even give clarification or explanation into all of this. There's one last point I want to raise and then get to the explanation by Ezer Hashem. And that is, at the end of the day, something strange is happening here. Avram Avinu tells Hashem, please wait. I have a mitzvah of Achnasus Archim. And we learn from this that Achnasus Archim is greater than welcoming Hashem. But as it turns out, it was a false alarm. They were angels. They were not hungry. They were not thirsty. <laughs> they were not high. They didn't have to be dehydrated because of the scorching sun. They were malachim. They were angels. They appeared as people. But as the story unfolds, it's obvious that they are angels, not people. Which means they're not hungry. They're not thirsty. In, in the Gemara and Bab Metzi, there's an argument that they actually eat. It only look like that they ate, you know, in honor of the hosts, but they really didn't eat anything. Another answer is they appear to be eating, or maybe they ate because... When you come to a place, you know, you come to a place, you got to follow the tradition, but they didn't, they didn't really need it. It's like when you come to somebody's home and you're completely satiated, you just stuff yourself with something so they shouldn't get insulted. So this means the whole reason why you're allowed to leave Hashem and say goodbye to Hashem is for Achnos Lepel, there was no Achnos here. So this turns, so it turns out is that even though Avram in his mind was doing the right thing, but in reality, it leaves us a little bit with a sour taste that he actually said goodbye to Hashem to greet angels who were not guests that needed anything. And we learn out, Hachnosos Archim is greater than from this story, which apparently was not a genuine Hachnosos Archim. It looked like Hachnosos Archim. Avram Avinu was trying to do the right thing, but in reality, it turned out that these were heavenly angels who actually had no needs. One of them came to destroy Zdaim. One of them came to heal Avram Avinu, to save light, to tell Sarah she's going to have a child. And this whole lavish story happens all on a level of Avram Avinu's goodwill. He's trying to do the right thing, but in reality, all of his tircha and all of his efforts to prepare the best cakes and the best bread and the best delicacies and the best dairy and the best deli was really in vain. The explanation in all of this is based on two themes. We have in Yiddishkeit something called tzedakah, and we have something called gemilus chasadim. As the Ramah made it clear that lelavis ha'archim, escorting the guests and taking care of them is part of gemilus chasadim, all under the umbrella of ahaftalerecha kamoicha. What's the difference between tzedakah and gemilus chasadim? Tzedakah is translated as charity, gemilus chasadim usually as benevolence, kindness. So the Maharal of Prague says, that the difference is, I'm going to use my own words, but his basic thrust is, the Maral of Prague explains, tzedakah is really feeding a person or giving them their physical, material needs. If somebody is hungry, you simply want to fill and satisfy their stomach. Gemilus chasadim is not to fill their stomach, it's to fill their soul. That's why it says the greatest form of gemilus chasadim is giving a loan to somebody so they should be able to support themselves and take care of their debts and be able to pay you back so they should be able to have their own dignity. In other words, Gemilus Chasadim is, as the Rambam says elsewhere, to help somebody before they fall apart. What do they say? Give somebody a fish when they're hungry, so they have one fish, but if you teach them how to catch fish, now, tomorrow, they also won't need help. So there's a big difference. Tzedakah is actually helping somebody who's poor and they need the help. Gemilus Chasadim is not feeding the person, actually. 
but giving them the confidence, giving them the dignity, giving them their soul. Tzedakah is allowing them to live, and Milas Chasadim is giving them a reason to live. It's nourish, nourishing them and nurturing them. So that's why it says the greatest Milas Chasadim is to help somebody get a job. So you don't have to feed them when they're hungry because they won't be hungry. It's giving somebody a loan that they'll be able to pay back because they're going through a hard time, but they'll be able to reestablish themselves, hopefully, Be'ezir Hashem. <coughs> now, within this difference comes the special mitzvah of Achnosus Archim, the way the Rambam is defining it. Achnosus Archim itself has two parts, just like every mitzvah of helping another person. There is what's called the nifl, the objective, the way it affects the other person. Somebody came to my home, they may have been hungry, they may not have a place to eat. I don't have a place to sleep. They don't have a place they can get a, 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 <coughs> a hot meal, a drink, whatever it is. And I feed them. This is something that this person who came to my home and I fed them and nurtured them and gave them water and food or a bed is something they received from me. This is an objective fact in Achnas Asarchim that you fed, nurtured, helped the other person. But there's something else in Achnas Asarchim. And it's even deeper. And the second thing in Achnasas Archim is the attitude of the giver, the attitude of the host. There's the objective result. You gave a person a piece of chicken. You gave a person a fruit, a vegetable, a bed. That's objective. That's what they received. But then there is this subjective element of it. My attitude, how I did it, my demeanor, my disposition, my character. The interest I showed, or lack of interest. The enthusiasm. With a smile or without a smile. Food, a person can get anywhere. They can get it in shul. They can get it in the marketplace. You could set up a situation that the person doesn't remain hungry. So that the objective benefit, they can get out of the house. What the Rambam is teaching us is that Avram Avinu didn't only do achnas asarchim in terms of feeding the people. Rather, he taught that what people are searching for is not just food. What people are searching for is their own soul. They're searching for dignity. They're searching for family. They're searching for not only a house, but a home. They're searching for company, for relationships, for friendships. They're searching for something that will fill not only their physical stomach, but also fill their loneliness. Fill the void that a human being has emotionally, psychologically, because I feel alone in the world. I feel detached in the world. There was a story that was circulating <laughs> last year. I thought it was fictional first, but then I heard from uh, there's an Israeli journalist who I happened to know, Sivan Rav Meir, and she <laughs> came to my <coughs> she, she, and she shared that she heard from the brother of the person. You all remember March 2020 when uh, the coronavirus literally <laughs> shut down the world. 7.7 billion people were brought to their knees. This was right after Purim, March 2020. And of course, a few weeks later was Pesach. And for the first time, maybe in their lives, many elderly could not have the Seder with their families because of the dangers of the coronavirus. <coughs> Excuse me. For the first time, many people had the Seder alone. So this is a story that happened in New York. I think it was in, in, in Long Island or in the five towns. There was a woman, she was a widow, and she couldn't go to her children for the Seder. So she would be alone by the Seder. She had a neighbor, this was in a building. <coughs> Excuse me. And the neighbor offered to her 
that he would keep his door open by the Seder. She should bring her table close to the door so they'll be able at least to see each other, certainly hear each other, and she'll be part of their family Seder. Even if she doesn't want to go in because of the pandemic. She'll be able to do everything with them, the Manashtanas and the Yachats and the Magid and the Rachts and the Moitzi, and all the way down to Chadgadia. And she agreed. And she brought over her table to her door. She opened the door. They, the other family opened their door and they did a wonderful Seder. After Yamtif, her son called her <coughs> to find out. So she called her ch- children after Yamtif. So she called one of her children. He said, how was it? How was the Seder? It must have been lonely and sad. She said, actually, it felt like your father was alive. I never had such a Seder. In your house, I don't have such a Seder. He said, why? What happened? He said, I don't know, but every melody, every niggin that your father used to sing, they sang. The whole nusach, exactly the same nusach. Everything was the same. I mamish felt like it was my Seder in the olden days with our own family. Every minigiyad, every tradition, every niggin, they told over his stories. So her son says, I want you to know that a few days before Pesach, this family called me. And they asked that I should share with them all the melodies that our father used to do and all the minhagim and all the traditions so that you would really feel comfortable. You weren't, you're not only joining another person's seder, but it's your seder. And uh, then the woman understood the secret of the Seder, of how they managed to be mechaven and do it exactly as her husband used to do it. So there is achnasas archim, and there's achnasas archim. There's the technical achnasas archim. I filled the person's stomach, and it's no small thing. When somebody is hungry, when somebody is thirsty, when somebody needs a bed, that's a very big thing. But what the Rambam is teaching us here, the Chiddush of Avram Avinu was, that there's the Achnasis Archim that has to do not just with the granting you your objective need, but something that's beyond the objective facts. And that's the empathy, the camaraderie, the feeling of kindness, the feeling of warmth. I appreciate you. You're part of my family. You're part of my home. You have dignity. You're not alone. This may not be feeding the mouth, but it's feeding the neshama. It's feeding the soul. Where do you recognize this more than anywhere else? Of course, you recognize it from the first moment. But where it really comes out is when the meal is over. The benching is over. It's time to say goodbye. What happens now? Comes the Rambam and says, it's the Livui. The real mitzvah is halvoya escorting the guest. There's that person who says, okay, it was nice to have you. There's the door. You're looking for the shortcut in Mansi the shortcuts. There's the shortcut. Right? And you go back, you fall asleep, whatever you do, Shabbos afternoon, Friday night, Kolchad the Fum Shurdalay, whatever the minig is. Board games, Scrabble. That's like the sixties, right? No? It's still twenty twenty one, Scrabble, Boggle. They still do that? You, okay. <laughs> Risk. <laughs> Whatever the minig is, <laughs> this one goes sloughy, this one goes learning, this one goes fabrain, this one goes schmoozing, <coughs> this one plays with the children. <clears throat> Says the Rambam, the person, the host or hostess, the woman or the man stand up and they lead the guest to the door and walk outside with them. And the message is, you just spend two hours with them, maybe three hours, maybe four hours. 
but I enjoy spending another minute with you, another five minutes with you, another ten minutes with you. In the guest's soul, this creates a major transformation. I wasn't just a burden. And when I finished, they say, Baruch Shepatrani. This gives the guest the dignity, the sense that they do see me as part of a home. They do see me as part of family. I wasn't just a burden and part of the checklist of a Jew is you do chesed and when you come to the next world you can check off it's part of a checklist. If it's part of a checklist, okay, checklist was done. The relationship is now over. It's time to say goodbye. They call it closure, right? Therapists talk about boundaries, which are important. We also talk about it sometimes. But when I stand by the door and I walk the person out and I say, now you know the address. You could come back anytime. It was so great seeing you. It happened to me last Shabbos. Last Shabbos. In the afternoon, we had a family for, for lunch and some other, some other guests. And it was quite a long meal. And uh, when it finished, we benched and uh, with the dessert, whatever, and the guests stood up to say goodbye. And at that point, a whole new group of guests came in. It was Bachram from the Waterbury Yeshiva, who were here for an Ufruf, the Weinberg family, Mazel Tov. And uh, I guess they finished lunch by them. They decided to come for a second lunch or dessert or chalant or just conversation. So they came. So they were walking in as the other guests were finishing. So I invited them to the table. It was quite a few boys. So as the guests went, I was sitting with new guests. So I didn't escort them to the door. So my oldest, Mendel, who was sitting at the table, he says, Tati, call me she'enoi malava arezik ilu shoifech damim. He quoted the Rambam. He didn't give him mussy. He was just quoting the Rambam verbatim. <laughs> it's like, well, what would the Rambam say if you have other guests? So he says, well, if Rambam told the Shechina to wait, so you tell the guests to wait because you have to escort those guests. So I said, Mendel, I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> and I excused myself and I went to escort uh, our dear guests. But now we understand what the Rambam really means. <coughs> because... Everybody, everybody in this room and everybody knows that it's small acts that sometimes make the deepest impact. It's small acts that confer upon a person significance and dignity. It's the small act of escorting that for the Rambam changes the entire dynamic of my hospitality. When the Rambam says, if I don't escort this guest, it's like I shed their blood. He doesn't mean, of course... It's like you shot them in the brain and you murdered them. You just fed them. (laughs) You just shared with them a very big meal that you worked very hard on to prepare. What he means is something very, very subtle. It's not because they may get killed in wild streets, in the Wild West. The Ramam is referring to even in a very civilized, civil place. Kilu Shaifich Damim is like we say when you embarrass somebody. Azil Sumka, Azil Chivravasa Sumka, the face blushes. The blood gathers, it's like a form of shedding blood. It means, I raise a kilo that sometimes I can have a guest, and the cholent was good, and the kugel was geschmack, and the egg salad and the liver was also good, but there's still a subtle element of shvichis damim that they ultimately feel that they're a burden on me. They ultimately feel that I'm not interested. They ultimately feel that I celebrated when they left much more than when they came. That's a form of shvichis damim. I didn't harm them physically but I deprive them from the dignity that every person deserves. I deprive them from the gift of love and camaraderie and friendship 
and humanness and sensitivity and empathy that I could have, I could have given them. They tell on Misa that there were two Jewish businessmen who were traveling. They had to get home for Shabbos. They, they couldn't make it. They got stuck on the road. Shabbos was coming. They had nowhere to be. So Belez Breda, they were people of, of, of affluence and dignity. They didn't like doing this. They were not like, they didn't see themselves as schnorr, so to speak. A schnorr is somebody who has a PhD for fundraising from Harvard University, just for the record. But they didn't see themselves that way. So they knock on the door. And again, this was something that was embarrassing for them. And somebody opens up the door for them and they say, you know, we're businessmen, we're quite affluent, but we push it on, have a place. Maybe we could stay here for Shabbos. The person says, no problem, but it's going to be 2,000 ruble. 2,000 ruble? I mean, the world of Astoria is not 2,000 ruble. <laughs> he says, listen, you want it? No, you said you're affluent. You want it? Good. You don't want this? Go somewhere else. So when he looked and they had no choice, they said, okay, just give me the money. <laughs> you know, in a hotel, you give the credit card. So they give the 2,000 ruble and he says, come in. And he had a meal over there. He himself was pretty well-to-do. He had a Suda Shabbos, La'ela, La'ela Tzazingin and Tzazogin. There was such archava, Kisuda Shlema Beshaiti, like the Levyosin and the Sher Habar. There was so much prosperity. So in the beginning, he invited them for Kiddush and the meal. They felt again a little bashful. But then one says to the other one, you know, we pay top dollar. We pay top dollar, at least let's enjoy it. They enjoyed a meal like they never had before. Shabbos morning was even better. Shalashudas was even better. Mitzoy Shabbos, they say goodbye to him. They thank him and they're about to leave. He takes out the 2,000 ruble and he gives it to them. They say, what are you doing? He says, you know, yesterday when you came to my home, you seemed so embarrassed, so bashful, so timid. I realize you're going to have a miserable Shabbos. You're going to starve, you're going to be hungry, you're going to say, nah, nah, nah. You know when people say, nah, I'm not hungry. <coughs> there's the famous batchan, there's the famous joke that a mashulach comes to the house. You know, a mashulach comes collecting money to the house. So you bring them into the house, and you ask the mashulach, we're having dinner, it will fish. Nah, nah, I came to eat. I came for tzedakah. Right? So the husband tells the wife, Dvayda, bring the fish. Bring out the fish. Of course, within 20 seconds, the fish is finished. Yoich? Abyssal yoich? Soup? Nah, what did I come here to eat from you? I came. Bring out the yoich. He tells his wife, she brings a bowl of soup. Within a minute, the soup is finished. The poor guy is starving. A little chicken? Nah. Potato? No, nothing. Bring out the chicken. She gives him a big plate. Yeah, Six choices. Everything is finished. Now the host turns to the Meshulach and he says, Kampot? Kampot? He says, Kampot grade, yeah. Kampot I would like. <laughs> okay. So, so this host says, I saw you guys, you were so bashful and embarrassed and timid, I realized that you're not going to eat anything. You're going to have a miserable Shabbos. So that's why I took from you 2,000 rubles. So you should feel this is your hotel, it's your house, you paid for everything, and you'll have a beautiful Shabbos. He says, now you had a beautiful Shabbos, take back your money and have a wonderful, a wonderful trip. So the Schar is Akter Rambam is Merubim in There's an amazing Pasuk in Mishle. It's a Pasuk in Proverbs by Shloim HaMelech. I'm going to read it to you. Better a feast of vegetables with love in it 
than a feast of a stuffed ox with hate in it. What does this mean? So the commentators say, Ralbag and Mitsudis Rashi, the commentators say something beautiful. Sometimes you come into a home, there's the most delicious food, spear ribs every night, but not stam. Creme de la creme, gourmet sheba gourmet. But there's no love in the home. So Shleim HaMelech says, I would rather eat vegetables my whole life. Give ve- but it should be ava. There's love in the vegetables. You sometimes walk into a home, the needs are very basic. But there's a family unit. There's camaraderie. There's, there is uh, affection. There's kinship. There's trust. There's loyalty. There's laughter. There's joy. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you can walk into a home, everything is there, but there's no soul. So Shleim Malik says, Michael, I'll eat vegetables for the rest of my life, but I want to feel the love. I don't eat a shar evos, a ungestopte ox. The sinaboy, such an interesting expression. There's hatred in the food. The Yalkut Shemaini says that it's actually referring to a story. Shleima Amalek Hazal Telas lost his kingship and he became a poverty stricken individual and he used to go collect. I don't know if you know. Shleima Amalek used to go collect. So the Gemara says, the Yalkut Shemaini says, one day he comes into somebody's home and the person says, Oh, Shleima Amalek, yeah. Do I have a meal for you? And he gives him a meal with Shoir Evos, the best, most expensive steaks in the world. Moiradik. But as he's eating, he tells Shleimah Melech, you remember what you did as a king? You made this mistake. You did this that was bad. You were so horrible. And Shleimah Melech is sitting and eating because he was starving and he's crying. And the Medrash says, the next day another person invites him to his home. The man was poor. He said, I only have a little vegetables. He gives him some vegetables. But he says, I want you to know that Hashem gave an oath to your father, David HaMelech, that the dynasty of David will never cease. One day it's going to come back to your children. And the Medrash finishes, Kivan Sava. When Shleim HaMelech heard that, he was already satiated. He didn't have to eat anything else. Sometimes I can eat and eat and eat, but I'm still starving. Because it's not the food I'm looking for. You know, people who binge know this very well. It's not the food I'm looking for. I already ate. I ate everything. My taste, everybody is satisfied. There's a void I'm trying to satisfy. The moment, sometimes you hear the good news, you don't have to eat anymore. You don't have to eat. I'm a chaya. You know, I sometimes do weddings, so you go to the yichud room after the wedding, they always, the caterer prepares the best food over there because the chassan and kala were fasting, right? But the chassan and kala never touched the food in the yichud room. Who eats it? The rabbi and the photographer. <laughs> me, me and the photographer have a beautiful dinner. You know, the shviger leaves, the shver leaves, everybody leaves. This is, this is you know, uh, unofficial. It's unofficial. What happens in the tent should stay in the tent. But the photographer has the time of his life. You know, the best sushi, everything is always fresh over there. Everything they play, the chassan and kala don't touch it. They fasted. Chim Kippur by them. But the mice is, after the chuppah, the yichud room, right? The adrenaline, there's so much excitement that they forget to eat. <laughs> when they come home from the wedding, they're starving. It's always a mitzvah to have food for the chassan and kali, you know, two in the morning when they come home from the wedding. So they shouldn't have to wait to the, you know, second shavabrachas for somebody to give them something. You have to treat a king and queen nice. But in any case, Shloyma Melech eats the vegetables, he's satiated, amachaya. Why? It wasn't the food. It was the vegetables had love, sensitivity, empathy. And the steak had v'sinaboy. It had, it had, it had h- hatred in it. The power of a word, you know? Last night I was at a wedding. <coughs> Mrs. Lamb, who's one of the pillars of our class, here almost from day one, she married off her son, Yisrael Lamb. 
to a girl in Lakewood, Dvori Meisel. So I went to the chasana, and uh, I was dancing with a chasana. I had a memory. It was a few years ago before Corona. I was giving a shear, my morning shear to men downstairs here and 20 downstairs. And there was a man there, 45 years old. And he's looking at me. And people are very comfortable to ask questions in my class. They interrupt constantly. You can hear on the recordings. And I see he wants to ask a question, but he's, he's having trepidation. He's nervous. He's anxious. So I encourage him. I say, Freg, Freg, ask. No, no. I push him, ask, I want to hear your question. Nah, nah, it's a stupid question. I'm like, I'm not continuing this class till you ask your question. I love stupid questions because they're usually the most brilliant questions. Questions that people are embarrassed to ask are usually the best questions. So he asked a question. It was a good question. I answered the question, we went on. At the end of the class, I said, I'm just wondering, do you know why you were so uh, afraid of asking the question? I, everybody asks questions. I, 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 don't, I don't mind. I like questions. So he says, yeah, I'll tell you the story. And he says it in front of everybody. He says he was a boy in grade two or grade three in a particular, particular yeshiva. And they were learning Parsha's boy. And Parai tells Moshe Rabbeinu that the women and the youth he should leave in Egypt. The elders can leave. So Moshe says... We're going to go with our youth and with our elders. And then he says, with our sons and with our daughters, Nelech will go. Why does it say twice Nelech in the Pasuk? I could have just said one sentence. Why does it say we will go twice? So that's what he asked. The teacher, who didn't have such pedagogical sensitivity, says, oh, these questions you'll ask for the Seder. For the Chacham, these questions are for the Seder. This is not a, a question you ask. It's a foolish question. And he told me since then, whenever a child asked a question and they wanted to make fun of the question, they would say, That was the symbol. He said, I never asked a question again in my life. So this is the first time I asked a question in class at the age of 45. That's why I was hesitant. At the Shia sitting the Chassan last night, Yisrael Lam is his name, Mazel Tov, to the Lam and Maisel's family. And he says, let me tell you my story. <laughs> he was learning here in Muncie. I think it was Degla Terra by Schwab, I think. And he said, I asked a question. I was also in second grade. And when I finished asking the question, the teacher says, Yisrael, come with me to the principal's office. I'm like, oh, you're not allowed to ask questions. I'm going to be punished. It was an innocent question. I'm like, oh, what did I do? He brings me to the principal's office. I go into the office, and he tells the principal, here, this boy asked a question. It was such a beautiful question. I was so inspired by it. I wanted he, the principal should hear, ask the question again. And he asked the question again, and the principal gives him a big piece of chocolate for asking such an amazing question. And Yisrael looks at the class. He was a little, he was a bacha then. It's a few years ago. 
well, he was a bacha till last night, but this was a few years ago, he was a young, 17 boy, 17 year He said, and since then I didn't stop asking questions. It's one response. It's one gesture. It's the face. It's how I look at a person. It's one word that shatters somebody's dignity or builds somebody's dignity. That makes a person feel alone in the world. I can't trust ultimately. Somebody's going to betray me. I always have to protect myself. I have to wear bulletproof vests. And that's what people do emotionally. They put on bulletproof vests so nobody can get close because I can't deal with the pain of another dagger in my chest. Emotionally, I already had it. They may not even know why they're doing it. It may have been a decision that happened at such a young age subconsciously. You don't even know why. I just know this is how I'm living. They didn't even know there's another way of life because this has become entrenched in my psyche. My neural pathways think this way. This is, this is, how, this is how I react to it. It's so important, especially people in education, moras and mechanchos, teachers, principals, menalim, menalos, mashpiyim, mashpiyas, rashishivas, mashgichim. It's so important don't be stingy with warmth. There was a boy, he was leaving yeshiva the first day, and I meet him in shul. I said, how, how was the first day? He said, it was lousy. I said, what happened? He said, I came with my yarmulke. There's a certain uniform, and the yarmulke has some, I don't know, whatever, you know these yarmulkes, that have a picture, or whatever it is. And I came. So the, the principal of the yeshiva, the menaruchni, walks over to me, the first day, and he says, this yarmulke is forbidden in this yeshiva. Go to the dorm, change your yarmulke, and come back. So I said, okay, what bothered you so much? Did you not know about the uniform? He says, no, the guy didn't even say hi. <laughs> it's the first day of yeshiva. So I was speaking to a group of mechanchim, and I would say, you know, lahavdil, by goyim, if I'm the manager of an office, I'm not talking about Jews, the first day, and not just the first day, the second day, the third day. What's the first thing you do in the morning when your employees show up? What's the first thing you do? Good morning. How are you? It's so nice to see you. How are your children? How is life? How is the weather? Whatever you talk about. You're dealing with neshama souls that are so, uh, so uh, fragile. Not everybody, but many are so fragile and sensitive. A bacha comes to yeshiva in the morning. Give him a hug. You don't want to give him a hug, give him a kiss on his forehead. You don't want to give him a kiss on his forehead. Greet him warmly. Greet her warmly. It's so nice to see you. Avart, tell them how happy you are that they're here in your presence. We become stingy with our words. We become stingy with our emotions, not realizing that words and gestures and an expression of real friendship, camaraderie, and empathy for some people is so vital. It literally makes the difference of a successful life. Towards Khalil the opposite. Last Shabbos, some Isa Shahaya, whoever was here last Shabbos knows. Last Shabbos, I gave a Shia Shabbos morning here in Shul, and I finished the class. <clears throat> they started to daven. And a woman walks into the men's section, and she comes over to the table where I was sitting. And she said, I came here this Shabbos, she announces loud, so the whole Shul heard. I came here this Shabbos to tell you, Rabbi Jacobson, that you saved my life. Thank you. So they started to daven. So I said, let's just walk out because I didn't want to disturb the daven. I said, let's just walk out to the porch. There's plenty of outdoor space in our shul. We look for indoor space, but outdoor space we have. 
So I said, let's go outside and you'll share with me. So I go outside and this woman tells me, this is last Shabbos, a few, three, four days ago. Last Hanukkah, she was walking. She was going to a menorah lighting. She lives in Long Island. And a truck didn't see her. And a truck hit her. She was unconscious. And when they came, they declared her dead. <laughs> she seemed dead. But she was alive. She said all her ribs, all the ribs were broken. All the rib bones were broken. Literally. And uh, it was a terrible situation. When she woke up, they said, we don't know if you're going to survive but she survived, and they sent her home after a month or two months, but she completely could not move. Bed literally all day, literally could not move. And her whole life was transformed from a, a successful, vibrant life into literally a paralyzed life. She said, I'm in bed all day. What stuff? What am I supposed to do? So I decided I'm going to start listening to your classes. This is Corona days, so I was producing a lot, lectures here and there. She was in the morning, I learned with you, and then in the afternoon, uh, South Africa, and then in the evening, Australia, and then the next day, it's Israel. And she said, basically, and then she said, I realized that every other class, you say the same thing. <laughs> I said, yeah, basically, I say the same thing in different words. <laughs> but she said, there's one line you kept on saying, that every person has to know that you're an ambassador. <laughs> Those of you who listen to me know. My Meshagasen, ah, very good. Very good. You're an ambassador of love, light, hope. And, and she starts copying me uh, on the porch. And, uh, and she said, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, I'm not going to surrender to this fate that they're telling me. And she says, every class I was just getting more energy and more energy. And I told my physical therapist, I'm an ambassador of love, light, and hope. I have to light up the world. I can't be here in bed for the rest of my life. I said, up my therapy. And she says, now look at me. She's walking around, running around. So she says, I came here for Shabbos. Stayed by the Green family. I stay, came here for Shabbos just to tell you thank you. And she said, I just want to tell you, don't stop talking. <laughs> I don't know if my wife would like to hear that. <laughs> don't stop talking because you never know who's listening, when they're listening, and what it does for them at any given moment. It was so humbling to hear this. Huh? It's very good to hear it. And now we'll understand that Avram Avinu did hachnasas archim. You know why? Angels may not need to eat steak, but they also need dignity. Malachim avart. Angels are spiritual beings. They also want warmth. When the Rambam tells us that the main mitzvah of hachnasas archim is escorting the guests, not just feeding them, He's explaining to us why Avram Avinu's Achnaz Azarchim was genuine. Fakert. Malachim look up to Avram Avinu. They know how much Hashem loves him and cherishes him. And if you'll notice something fascinating, and this is again these nuances, it's so easy to miss. The Degel Machen Ephraim says this. He was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. He says, if you look at the opening verse that I gave you in the source sheet, Three men are standing above him. Interesting, they're standing above him. It's a euphemism, but the language is fascinating. A few psukim later, Avram Avinu is standing above them. What happened? In the beginning, who is greater, a malach or a person? In the beginning, it's 
they're standing over him. They're greater than him. He's a human being. They're angels. But once he invited them, once he did the mitzvah the way angels can do it, now suddenly, who oimed alehem? At this point, Avram Avinu is much higher than the Malachim. So the Malachim look up to him. So when Avram Avinu escorts them, it's not just an escort of an angel. The guy doesn't need you. Of course he needs you. He may not need you for the steak. He may not need you for the ice cream, for the pie of cheesecake. He may not need you for the cholent, for the kugel, for the chicken, for the meat, for the four types of salads. Malachim don't eat quinoa. Maybe quinoa they eat. Maybe that's why they live long. They, they may not need me for my quinoa or my spinach or my celery. And certainly not for the carbs. But for the levia, for the connection, of course. So the G'daylach Nasasarchim HaKabbalah's Pnei wasn't fiction. It wasn't just in Avram's mind. It was actually a very real, real experience. According to this, we understand beautifully why the Rambam source for G'daylach Nasasarchim HaKabbalah's Pnei is from that first Pasuk. Vayar v'hinei What's the halacha in the middle of Shemayna Esra? You're standing in front of Hashem. The halach is, I don't motion to people. You don't text people. You stand with awe. That's even in the middle of Shemayna Esra. Vayare love Hashem. Hashem appears to Avram Avinu Mamish in reality. How does he even see that there are three people walking? Vayar, he sees. Hashem is talking to you. What are you, ADHD? Hashem is talking to you. It's even much more than Shemayna Esra. But Vayar, he saw Because when there's three people who from Avram Avinu's vision needed help, they're standing in a scorched weather. The sun is spurting. And they must be thirsty and starving. At that point, of course, he didn't know they're angels. Vayar, he noticed them. That notice is even before Achnasasarchim. That captures the essence. There's actually him telling Hashem, don't leave, I want to take care of them. Taking care of them. But noticing them, while you're standing with Hashem, this represents my sense of empathy, my sense of caring, my sense of connection, my sense of attachment. Somebody asked me one day, <coughs> I don't know why, but they said, is there Achnos' Archim in Munsi? I said, what do you mean? They said, we invite sometimes a family for Shabbos, a relative, but it's not Achnos' Archim, they have what to eat. We won't invite them. They'll find food, they have food in their house. So it's not really Achnazar. Is anybody doing Achnazar? Mainly you find somebody who's pushed hungry. Somebody falls into a place. Somebody's stuck in an airport. Somebody's stuck in a city. I understand. But most Achnazar, it's not real Achnazar. But now we understand that that's not the case. Maybe I'm not giving you food that, maybe I'm not giving you food that if you wouldn't have this food, you would starve a whole Shabbos. You can go to somebody else. The Shul has food. You can go to the Kiddush. But if the essence of Achnas HaSarchim, the Rambam says, is what? It's the dignity that I give a person. It's that we share a home, we share family, we share connection. It's that I enjoy you. It's that I honor your soul, not only your mouth, not only your stomach. So now I ask you a question. Somebody who has a home filled with food and pantries filled with food, they don't need that. They need it as much as anybody else. Sometimes they need it more than anybody else. We now come to the final point. How can Avram say to Hashem, don't leave? If Hashem is omnipresent, if He's everywhere, where is He leaving to? What does it mean, don't leave? 
So Reb Nachum Chernobyl says something absolutely magnificent. And he says, what does it even mean that something is greater than welcoming Hashem? What does it even mean? You're experiencing Hashem and then you tell Hashem, wait, wait, there's something more important than you. If Hashem is reality, if Hashem is all of reality, there's something more important. Even a person. What's a person? You're honoring a person. What's a person? A person is Hashem's energy in the world. Or to quote some guy, he's a God's ambassador in this world. She said not to stop. I won't stop. <laughs> so you're honoring a person who's B'Tselem Elohim. So you're telling Hashem, wait, wait, wait. I got to go honor I got to go honor a person. person is B'Tselem Elohim. But that's really the idea. There's two ways in which I experience God. One is a person experiences Hashem in private setting, a vision, davening, learning, intimacy, meditation, mindfulness, an epiphany, an experience, an enlightenment. It's your spiritual own transcendent moments that you have in life, every person according to their own state and capacity. And then there is the way I touch God by being there for another person. By literally giving somebody a drink, embracing somebody, hugging them, giving them a kiss, telling them a kind word, inviting them into my life. I touch God there too. But I'm not touching God in a transcendent experience. I'm touching God through seeing Him in the face of a stranger. Through seeing Hashem in the face and the soul of another person. Says Reb Nachem Chernobyl, this is what Avram Avinu was telling Hashem. Hashem is not going anywhere. But if I find favor in your eyes, don't leave me when I'm busy giving tongue and mustard to three Bedouins. Don't leave me. Allow me to know and experience the same dvekas, the same intimacy, the same oneness that I have with you in moments of spiritual transcendence. Allow me to alna savr mayalavdecha. Don't run away from my experience. Don't allow me to feel that now I'm descending into a physical, technical world defined by food and drinks, defined by pampers and kitchens, kitchens, defined, defined by microwaves, ovens, and shoppings, and deliveries, and boxes, and washing, and bathing, and cleaning, and laundry. What does this have to do with Hashem? Moments of spiritual transcendence, they seem very godly. al nasava don't let go of me. Don't go away from me. Don't go away from my consciousness. Allow me to realize that what I'm tending to the physical need or to the emotional need of a child, of a friend, of a stranger, a telephone, an appointment, it's technical, it's tedious, it's monotonous, it's as boring as it gets. I probably don't have to elaborate on the various duties and responsibilities of life it's like, and I want to say, get me out of here. Take me to a place of serenity. That's where you come here. So he asks, <laughs> Don't go away from me. Allow me to experience the truth that touching you and finding you in the daily grind of life, of being there for another person, of touching the grace in another person, of showing love and empathy to another person, I should be able to realize that not only you're here, but in many ways it's much deeper and greater than the relationship that comes in moments of spiritual transcendence.
Have a wonderful week and thank you for coming. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.